0: Real Life Radio is sponsored by River City Community Church.
1: Grace and peace to you and welcome to Real Life Radio with Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now this is a church that exists to help people just like you find the real life you were created for and then find it to the full. That's what Jesus said in John 10.10. And we're in a series called Financial Fitness, talking about being good stewards with what God has given you. But maybe you feel like, "Mm, I don't have much fact, maybe trapped. Well, pastor Sean has an idea for you. The quickest way to escape slavery is to embrace servanthood. Today's message is called Free at Last. Grab a Bible if you have one nearby. Pastor Sean is in Genesis chapter 39. It's time for Real Life Radio.
0: We're in this series called Financial Fitness. I'm actually wanting to spice it up a little bit so I might change the name to uh, Budgetary Buffness, you know. I just think it has a little, it's got to be alliterated because I'm a pastor. That's what we do, okay, you know. Biblical languages are important, I guess, but alliteration, now that really matters. But we're talking about money. We're talking about finances. And it's such a practical area, and such an area where so many of us need life transformation. Now, we learned something very powerful last week that I think has implications in every area of our lives. We talked about crossing over from fear to faith, and the bridge is this thing that God gave us called the tithe. You Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be a way to train our heart. And we saw that God's desire is to move our heart from fear to faith. And i got to say to you, River City, i got to say, way to go. So many people stepped up and said, we want to be a part of that. So many people. I had a guy this morning come, and he and his wife had made that 90-day commitment to tithe, okay, to, to just test God and see what would happen. And so his wife couldn't be with him today. She sat down, but he had the tithe and he was responsible. He says, okay, you're my witness. And he's put it in the offering box right out there in the foyer. And there were like three of us. And so he's covered. You just want to know, you know, he's good to go. All right. You know, and the tithe we saw is more than just this. Hey, it's, it's our fellowship. So we should support it and support the mission of the kingdom. Although that's a good thing. That's a lofty thing. But we saw it's way more than that. This is a covenant between us and God, whereby we say, God, you're my provider. I trust you, and I trust you to do more with the 90% that I have left in my income than I could do with 100%. And that's the part where it's moving us from fear to faith. And once that begins to happen, and once you begin to see God work on this issue of money, because this is the beautiful thing. This is why the Bible talks so much about money and why it's such a great tutor, because it's so common, it's so mathematical. Can I say that? It's, it's just numbers. So, when all of a sudden you see in this area, God, you're, you're giving resources to the tithe that God asks you, and yet you're seeing more produced out of what is arguably less resource, but yet you're seeing God do more. You're seeing more. Done. You're seeing you're having more at the end of a paycheck. You're, you're watching God do something that you go, okay, this is math now. I can see that. And you understand that that's just one small area of your life where God is teaching and training. But once your heart begins to be trained and moved from fear to faith, that now begins to affect every area of your life. That begins to affect your parenting. You stop making parenting decisions out of fear and you start making them out of faith and trusting the Lord and believing in his presence. You, you start relational issues marital issues, work issues, all these different issues where fear is crippling and destructive and faith is multiplying and productive, and you now begin to operate in faith and it changes you. It's powerful. That's why this matters. And so we want to look at one of those areas today. I don't think there any discussion about money would be complete without looking at how we make our money, and that's our work. I think we have a love-hate relationship with work. I mean, a, a lot of people do. And I have some numbers to actually back that up. But a year and a half ago, Forbes magazine covered a huge project that the Gallup organization had done. It said, if you don't like your job, you're not alone. According to a massive report released yesterday by Gallup, the Washington, D.C.-based polling organization, there are twice as many actively disengaged workers in the world as there are engaged workers who love their jobs. Simply said, the headline was, Unhappy Employees Outnumber Happy Ones by 2 to 1 Worldwide. Since the late 90s, Gallup has been measuring international employee satisfaction through a survey it's been honing over the years. It, in total, it has polled 25 million employees in 189 different countries. The latest version, released this week, gathered information from 230,000 full-time and part-time workers in 142 countries. Overall, Gallup found that only 13% of workers, this is worldwide, feel engaged by their jobs. 13%. That means they feel a sense of passion for their work, a deep connection to their employer, their job, and they spend their days driving innovation and working to help move the ball forward in their work, in their job. The vast majority, some 63%, are not engaged or disengaged, meaning they're not, they are unhappy, but they're not drastically so. In short, they've just checked out and they're just kind of going through the motions. They sleepwalk through their days, putting very little energy into their work. A full 24% are what Gallup calls actively disengaged, meaning they pretty much hate their jobs. That's where they're at. They act out and they will actually undermine what their coworkers are trying to accomplish. Add the last two categories together, you get 87% of workers worldwide who, as Gallup puts it, are emotionally disconnected from their workplaces and much less likely to be productive. In other words, work is more often a source of frustration than one of fulfillment for nearly 90% of the world's workers. Think about that. It means most workplaces are less productive, less safe than they could be, and employers are far less likely to be able to create new jobs. That's the reality. Now, it turns out the U.S. has some of the best numbers in the world, with 30% happy in their work, 52% feeling and this is their word, not mine, blah. 52% are kind of disengaged and, you know, whatever. 18% hate their jobs. Those numbers are not what we'd want, but they're better than most places. The Middle East was one of the worst, okay? Where do the happiest workers live? Panama, as you would imagine. <laughs> but I, of course. Duh. <laughs> Where 37% love their jobs, 51% are not engaged, and 12% are very unhappy. What are we supposed to do with that information? I mean, really, as employers, there's all kinds of things you might say you want to kind of check into, because I'm sure your employees are totally the exception. But that's one of those things you stop and look at. Think how much time we spend at work. Think how much time we spend at work. And I I have to tell you, based on just my conversations with people and interactions, those numbers, are they statistically bear out what I've kind of sensed and feel about a lot of people. And we spend so much of our time working. I don't think God created us to be doing something that we find meaningless and just kind of a necessary evil. That's why most people, or many people, feel more like slaves in the context of their work than anything else. It's just, I have to do it. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis 39 because there's a story in the Scripture of someone who walked through some things that I think is so instructive for us. Maybe you're in a place where you would say, hey, I don't love my work, or I'm just kind of drifting. Or maybe you're even in a place where you do love your work, but I think the story we're going to look at this morning has some powerful things for every single one of us. It's the story of Joseph. Remember the dreamer, Jacob's son? Second youngest son, Joseph. He was the favored son. And Jacob, somewhat unwisely, made that quite obvious. He doted on Joseph. He loved him. And remember, Joseph was a dreamer. He had these dreams. and They were unusual. They weren't just like, wow, I ate pizza, and boy, you can't imagine what I dreamed. They were very specific dreams. Not only did he have these dreams, he had a sense of understanding what they meant. That one day, his brothers, sisters, even his parents would in some way bow down before him as a leader. And as a young man, he probably unwisely shared those, and his brothers became really resentful, bitter, and angry. They hated Joseph. One day, Joseph's father, Jacob, sends Joseph out. Remember, he's the second youngest, to check on his older brother's work. And he does it, and they are sick of it, and they beat him up. They throw him into a pit, and ultimately they decide to sell him into slavery to a group of Ishmaelite slave traders. They take his coat, cover it with animal blood, and they go back to their father. Your son was torn up and carried off by a wild beast. This is all that's left. And their father grieves. And Joseph finds himself sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt, in the house of a man named Potiphar. Now, what, if, if you were to stop and say, wow, what's Joseph going to be like? What's going to happen in Joseph's life? You would think his life is wrecked. He moved from favored son to slave, a, lang, a, a country that didn't worship his gods, didn't understand his language, he didn't understand theirs, and he's a slave. You could expect bitterness, anger, you could expect him to shake his fist at God, how could you do this? But in Genesis 39, we read what begins to happen, and we find, okay, this is an entirely unexpected and different kind of outcome. Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Did you catch that word, by the way, prospered? When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success, note that word, and everything he did, gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, his master's eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household. He entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed that household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. Listen to this. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Did you catch that? Catch those phrases? Prospered. Success. Favor. He entrusted him with more and more. I want you to understand, that's all as a slave. That's not what you expect to read of someone has everything stripped of him and being sold into slavery. Amazing story.
1: We want to take a quick minute to remind you, you're listening to Real Life Radio with Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church in a series called Financial Fitness. And if you'd like to hear this full message or even watch the video podcast from Pastor Sean, it's available right now on demand at the River City website called reallife.org. And if you'd like to come visit River City Community Church,
0: God created you for something very special. Come find out more at River City Community Church.
1: And back to this message called Free at Last. This is Radio for Real Life. Well,
0: the story continues. And if you know the story, you know Potiphar's wife was not a nice lady. Okay? She wasn't. She saw this young slave, and Joseph was good looking. And she kind of had a bit of cougar in her, right? So she's... It's true. It's true. It's what the Bible says. It doesn't say cougar. That was my editorial comment. But it's exactly, you read the story. Don't believe me. Just read it in the Word, okay? She starts hunting Joseph, and she's brazen about it. Says she wants him to lie with her. And she goes at him. And Joseph loves God and fears God. He also cares about his master. He refuses. He says no. She comes at him again. He refuses again. Third time, he refuses He literally has to leave and run, and she grabs his coat as he's leaving, but he runs and leaves it. By the way, that's just a great section and commentary on how to handle it when you're experiencing temptation to sin, okay? You don't sit around. You don't talk with it. You don't reason with it. You don't compromise. You run. You turn around, run, leave your coat if you have to, the shirt as well. Who cares? You run. And that's how Joseph remained pure in the face of pretty heavy pressure to give in to sin. Well, unfortunately, this woman was scorned and bitter. She takes Joseph's coat to her husband, which she had. says, look at that slave of yours. He tried to rape me. What are you going to do about it? Now, you know Potiphar sitting there, okay? He knows Joseph, and he knows his wife. But he's pressured by societal convention to believe his wife, and so he has Joseph thrown into prison. So not only is Joseph unfairly enslaved, now he is falsely accused and he's thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. Maybe now he's going to get angry and shake his fist at God and go, boy, I'm trying to be faithful, but nothing happens, and it just keeps going from bad to worse. Verse 20 of Genesis 39 says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. As Potiphar was a royal official, Joseph went to the royal prison. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him, here's this word again, favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph, look at this, in charge of all those held in the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him, look at the word, success in whatever he did. Similar phrases, favor. He was put in charge, given success. Something's going on in this guy, Joseph, okay? We have to stop. We sit here and complain about our jobs, okay? And your job might be really bad, but I'll bet Joseph beat you. But words like favor, prosper. Joseph had something else going on. He had a confidence in God that he understood there's always something going on. Joseph had his eyes on a bigger reality that was going on alongside of his circumstances. Very important idea. I want you to grab on to that for a second. A bigger reality that is happening alongside of our circumstances. doesn't mean our circumstances aren't real and they might not be difficult, even unpleasant. There's no denying that. But Joseph isn't saying that that's not real, and this isn't unpleasant, and this isn't hard, and I wish it weren't different. He's not saying any of that. He's just understanding there is a bigger, a different reality going on right alongside. And that's God's working on something. God's doing something. And because of that, that became like an inner well inside of Joseph that filled him. If this psalm would have been written at the time Joseph was alive, he would have been able to say amen. Amen. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. All that's happening in the presence of his enemies. Ever felt like that at work? You're in the presence of enemies or at least hostile environment. And and Joseph would would have understood that. Yeah, but God says that he'll prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup will overflow. Being filled with something from a different source now back to joseph while he's there two prisoners come into the prison one night and they are court officials of pharaoh each of them have an interesting occurrence on the same night they have very unusual significant dreams and they start telling the dreams and joseph is like well tell us tell me about this remember joseph the dreamer the interpreter of dreams so they tell his dreams and he gives them the interpretation he gets to tell one of them you'll be released Three days you're going to be released and return back to Pharaoh. Remember me when you go before Pharaoh. And to the other, he has to say, unfortunately, your dream means in three days you'll be released but executed. And both come true. The one who's released forgets about Joseph. Several years go by. And one day Pharaoh has a couple of dreams that are disturbing. And none of his wise men, none of his people can tell him what it means. And then this guy remembers, oh, there's this guy. There was this guy in prison. And we had dreams and he told us what they meant and they came true. They rush and they get Joseph. So he not only does he interpret the dreams, he tells Pharaoh what the dreams are and what they mean. And what they mean is God is preparing Pharaoh because there are going to be seven years of plenty, seven wonderful years with good harvests and plenty. But they're going to be followed by seven years that are going to be so bad, a famine, so terrible, it'll make everybody forget the years of plenty. And Joseph says, Pharaoh, you should appoint someone to begin now to build storehouses. During those seven years of plenty, prepare for the famine because God's let you know what's going to happen so that you can save Egypt. Verse 39 of chapter 41, Genesis 41:39, 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Well, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all the people that are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you." Joseph still has the smell of prison on him. If this were a contemporary setting, he'd be sitting there in prison stripes. Joseph, God told you, Joseph, who better than you? You're going to be my second in command, and you're going to prepare us for this. Verse 41, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That meant he could sign for Pharaoh. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in a chariot, this is very public, as his second in command and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of all the whole land of Egypt. Wow. That's a pretty cool ending. God had been preparing Joseph to fulfill this destiny the entire way. Each difficult step of the way, God was working and preparing Joseph for what he had. I want to suggest that what we read of here in Joseph, exposes and even explodes some very common myths when it comes to our own work. The first myth that Joseph kind of tears apart is this idea of a sacred and secular divide. You know what I mean when I say that? The sacred and the secular divide. But there are some areas of life that are sacred. They're God-inhabited, okay? We would say the gathering of the saints, the church, that's a sacred place, okay? Our work with the church, things. But then there's the secular. And that's kind of got a different set of rules, and it's where, in our workplace, you know, all these different things. And, and there's the sacred, and that's wonderful, but then there's this is hard reality, this is the secular space. Joseph would say, there's no such thing. This whole idea of separation of church and state, it's a great idea when it's talking about, in the Constitution, the state not using its power and its might to force the church into religious directions. But when you try to say, okay, but we're going to keep the church out of any public arena, how, how do I actually separate church and state when I'm technically both? Because we are the state. It's the state of the union. It's us. We're the, gov- we're the people, right? It's the governance on behalf of the people. And I'm the church. How do I pull those parts out of me? How, do, how does that work? Joseph would say, you can't. There is no space. There is not one ounce of space that God's spirit isn't able to permeate and penetrate. God was there with me in a very secular place in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was not a believer. He worshipped foreign gods, had nothing to do with God, but God blessed everything he had because of Joseph. And Potiphar's like, I don't really know what that's all about, but keep it up. It's all good. Was Potiphar a believer? No. But God was blessing Joseph, and because of it, his entire house, his very secular place. God was there in prison. And God was working, God was moving. Pharaoh wasn't a worshiper of God. God was moving and working. There is no secular, sacred divide. Do, do you understand that? Do you know God knows your industry better than you do? If it's construction, God knows better. The principles. And if there's going to be some new trade magazine that's going to come out with some new idea, new God already knew. Finance, banking, agriculture, whatever your business is, God knows it better. There is no separation there. And Joseph's story kind of shines the light on that. God wants to work In the context of your work. We have another misconception, I think, that success is measured by position. Yet Joseph had success in each one. And by the way, the positions were a slave and a prisoner. And then prime minister. We think success is measured by position. Joseph would say, no, it isn't. It has nothing to do with it. The word says he was successful in each position regardless. And that's tough for us because we really are into position. And we have our little signs and our little symbols, you know. If you get that one cubicle on the end that has an extra foot of space, that's a status symbol, you know. Oh, yeah, I got that cube. I can, I can turn around and do this in my cube. And look at that. you see that? Yeah, I got a little gate in front of it. So if I crouch down, I got privacy. Right? <laughs> Not when I'm standing up, everyone can see me, of course. But when I'm down, and God help you, if you get to an office, oh, my gosh. And then if you get to move to the corner office... You are Lord of all that you survey. And then, if you get to move up a floor or two, be still my heart. We have all these little score-keeping things that we have to measure success. Joseph would say, no, that's not what success is. Success is actual good fruit, and God can bring it wherever you are. God doesn't need position to give you success. Another Misconception we think of when it comes to work is prosperity is measured by money. We have no indication that Joseph had any money in any of these positions. As a slave, as a prisoner. But yet God gave him, it says he prospered him. We think, we actually equate prosperity with money and that becomes a problem One of the things that we've taught, and we always teach when it comes to finances, is that God wants three things very specifically for you regarding finances. And he wants you to prosper. He wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to be free. And he wants you to have purpose, and your resources to have meaning and purpose, and do something good in the world. Those are three things that the, the word is pretty clear about. Prosperity, freedom, And purpose are things God has for you and your finances. And when you start talking prosperity, let me tell you, you can pack out a room. People start waving their hankies when you start talking prosperity. Mmm, that's church. Talk about that, Pastor. Because they like that idea. Until I like to tell the last part. the last part is, God wants you to be prosperous regardless of how much or how little you have in the bank.
1: Thank you, Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Real Life Radio in this series called Financial Fitness if you'd like to hear the full unedited message and this whole series, it's available right now when you find the sermons link at reallife.org. But of course, you're invited to come and visit us at River City Community Church, located on Lookout Road right behind Rotoma Park. See all the details, directions, and service times also at reallife.org. If you'd like to call the church, the number is 210-490-5262. As Real Life Radio is a service of River City Community Church, We hope you join us again next time for more real life.